If we haven't met, my name is Andrew. Um, I don't have any props or a career-ending French accent, um, but I am going to read from the Bible tonight. I will be reading from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 24. It's on the screen. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Hey, no matter who you are, you have to uh, admit that the first time you saw a platypus, that was a surprising moment. Uh, back in 1799, the keeper of natural history at the British Museum got the opportunity to stare down at this new creature that had just been sent from the colony of New South Wales. And he carefully started cutting 
all of the fur around the beak of the platypus, convinced that eventually, if he cut really carefully, he would eventually find that someone had sewn a bill onto something else, that there was no way that this animal could actually be a real animal. It was nothing like anything that had ever been seen anywhere in the world before. A body of furry brown cat with four short legs and sharp claws over webbed feet, the tail of a beaver, but the beak of a duck. And he did not believe, even for one moment, that this animal could be real. But his problem was, Neither could he find any evidence that this animal was a fake. We know that the catbird beaver duck is one of our two beloved monotremes. The other one being the echidna. Perfect. Well done. And we know that these animals are a crowbar in the gears of biological science. But here's the thing. No matter who you are, you have to admit, that the platypus is astonishing. Uh, likewise, no matter who you are, you have to admit that seeing someone abandon or pervert or distort the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is equally, if not more so, astonishing, surprising and shocking. The good news of the gospel is that God has done all that is needed for you that you might be able to enter into a right relationship with him. That God has actually done all that is required, not just for you, but for every person in this world who has life and breath. God has done all that is needed that we might be saved through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, from our sin. He's done it all. And yet, through history, time and time and time again, humans have consistently shown that they think they can improve on God's work. They can add things to it or take things away from it and improve on God's plan or, or perhaps they, they think that God didn't get it quite right at the cross. And I find that absolutely astonishing. And so did Paul. And that's why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. As we work through this series in Galatians, we're reading a letter written by Paul to a series of churches in a region of the world called Galatia, which is now modern southern Turkey. Uh, you can read about Paul's ministry in the region in Acts chapter 13 or 14, where we see that Paul planted churches in all of those places that are listed there in the circle. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, city in Antioch. And he planted those churches in the midst of great strife and trial. In fact, people were constantly attacking him and the gospel, but both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, who lived in those cities, all became Christians side by side. And that started to raise its own set of tensions. And so Paul consistently preached carefully that the Lord Jesus Christ was all you needed for salvation. That the cross is all you need. Such that in Acts chapter 13, Luke records a section of one of his sermons. And he writes these words, recorded from Paul. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Done deal. 
a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And yet in those very same churches where he preached these words, in those very same churches where he had proclaimed the freedom that Christ has set us free to live in, in those very same churches almost immediately, people began to compromise that message. Take away from it, add to it, change it. Specifically in Galatians, Paul addresses the issue that people were saying, you have to obey the law of Moses and more if you're going to be truly a Christian. And it's only that when you get final justification, when you truly obey the law of Moses and trust Jesus and other things. And it's because of that that Paul is astonished and shocked and perplexed because he had preached to them the exact opposite message. So we're going to dig into chapter 1 tonight and look at Paul's expression of astonishment in Galatians. And as I said earlier, I want you to see three things. Number one, I want you to be awed again by the gospel tonight. This is where this letter starts, by laying out what Jesus has done for you, that you might again just think to yourself, why has God been so gracious to me? Secondly, I want us to see the damage a distorted gospel causes. And thirdly, I want us to recognize some of the perverted gospels that are in the marketplace today that we may come across and encounter. So first, let's be awed again by the gospel as Paul articulates it beautifully from chapter 1, verse 3. Take a look with me from verse 3. He writes, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's begin by just remembering what we bring to the table in this exchange with God. In fact, the only thing we bring to the table in this exchange with God, in our relationship with God, is there in verse 4. And I wonder if you can spot what the thing is that we bring to the table. Who can see it? Our sins. That, that is what we bring to the table. We bring a face determined to go away from God. We bring to our relationship with God a will that is to replace God with anything else in the world. We bring to the table a heart desirous after choosing anything but God himself. We bring to the table a mind somehow seeking ideas that are grander than God himself. We bring the wholesale rejection of everything that is God and God's in the world. And yet here's the thing. God still loves you. That's astonishing in itself. That we bring nothing but sin, and yet God still loves you. That's astounding. There never was a moment when God was determined to just leave us to our own devices, but it is God's will that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So you see there in verse 4 that as a result of that, Jesus gave himself for your sins. You did not ask him, you did not plead with him, you did not text him or call him or inquire of him. You did not care for him, but he loved you. And no one took his life from him. He gave himself to pay for your sins, the things that you had done wrong in life against him, both of your own volition and things you have not done, that he took away all those things in his death at the cross willingly instead of you. And Martin Luther, who one of the great reformers, 
from the 16th century as he read these words in Galatians. He said, these words are thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of self-righteousness. We sinners are unable to save ourselves and so we are called to give up trusting ourselves, to recognise that there is nothing that we can do but to invest ourselves wholly in the Lord Jesus who came and died for us to rescue us from the present evil age. And herein, I think, lies the first hurdle that many people end up tripping on. We rarely think life in the world is bad or problematic. And certainly very rarely would think life is evil. When we have problems, we get out our wallet and we pay them away. It's just how we work. And then look around and see the joys and delights in Sydney today. Just imagine the things that you could have gone and experienced and seen today if you'd decided you were going to just step out and, and go and do something amazing. So many things. And it's why one Sydney minister said some time ago that the biggest problem with evangelism today is that Australians think they are already in heaven. So let us not be deceived. There is much to delight in, but not all we see in the world is gold. And what God sees in the world is something that we need to be rescued from. Now, this world drives at self-reliance and self-obsession and self-determination and self-salvation, which can achieve much now, but gives you nothing in eternity. And God says Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this perpetual motion sin machine that is the world that we live in. And the word rescue here is fascinating. In the New Testament, as you go to every occurrence of that word rescue, it's always used in situations where death is inevitable but for the arrival of a saviour. And friends, it just points to the reality that in this world you may delight... But as you chase after things in this world and chase after all it has to offer and all that glitters, in the end, this world will kill you. It'll lead you away from God and after other things and it will kill you eternally. And Jesus came and died to rescue you from it. And all this happened, again verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father. Now, that is really important because some people think that God was really angry and Jesus decided he'd come to earth and die for sins to placate an angry God. But no, what this little bit at the end of verse 4 tells us is that we cannot drive a wedge between the Father and the Son, but that they work together to bring about our salvation. There's no angry God and nice Jesus. No, everywhere through the New Testament, we see that the Father and the Son are united in one rescue plan to bring all of us to salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. And Christ's death at the cross, where his Shoulders bear your sins is the ultimate expression of his love for you, a love you didn't ask for, a love you don't deserve, but a love you get because he loves you. And the fruit of all that is in verse 3. See, in the start of verse 3, we have grace. Grace from God. His unmerited favour is ours and peace 
No longer is our relationship one that is strained or stressed, but God promises to be for us in life. And by his spirit, he works amazing transformation in us that we may no longer be bound up by sin, but be transformed to be more and more his people, as we'll see in Galatians 5 and 6. But you see in Paul here in chapter 1, the very man who used to kill Christians and commend people for killing Christians ends up turning his life around through the power of the spirit and preaching the same gospel he persecuted. Friends, this is your story. This is your story, that you did not love God, but that God loved you. That you did not think of Jesus, but that Jesus thought of you. That you did not call on the Spirit to open your eyes, but the Spirit opened your eyes to the goodness of God nonetheless, that you may know the power of Christ's death and resurrection in your life. This is your story, the story that saved you. And we need to be awed by this again and again. That God loved you when you were unlovely. And it's only this gospel that saved you and anyone else. But let us also recognize, therefore, second, that other words don't save. Let's talk about this explicitly. Uh, Indeed, from verse 6, we can see the damage a distorted or perverted gospel will cause. Look at me from verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now Paul's language here is intense and unusual. In most of his letters, if we turn to Philippians or Ephesians or Colossians, Thessalonians, what we'd see is Paul waxing lyrical at this point for his thankfulness for the church, his partnership with them. He'd be praying prayers of thanks to God for the amazing work that God has done in their lives. But not here. Paul is indeed white hot with anger. You know when you have a bonfire? You build a bonfire and You stand around it and it's super warm, as many of us did at the CYF training weekend. You stand around a beautiful bonfire and you see all the yellow flames and you can see inside and there's sort of deeper red flames. You see right to the centre of a fire and it's like white. You put your marshmallow in there and it will be no more. Many commentators have said the language that Paul is using here is like white, hot anger. Perhaps we don't see that coming out in the English, but it's with that level of conviction that Paul is saying, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that you'd start believing something that is not good news at all. I'm shocked that you would turn to a different gospel that is not really a gospel at all. And the whole book will sort of deal with this, but in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, I think he helpfully sort of articulates in one verse part of the problem. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Rather than relying upon the grace of God and the kindness of God and the love of God in Christ to save them, they've gone, 
Thanks, God, but we need to do all this stuff too. And then we'll be truly Christian. And Paul is like, what are you talking about? I haven't taught you that. No one else has taught you that. Jesus didn't teach you that. And so what are you doing, Paul says, as they've adopted these ideas of alter the importance of the Old Testament law? And Paul says we do not need to do things in order to secure our salvation, for it is one and completed and finished at the cross. And so Paul calls this gospel plus idea a perversion of the gospel of Jesus. For Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the Galatian sort of troublemakers and perverters have come in and they're saying the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ your Lord when you circumcise men and obey the food laws and, and keep all the festivals and to do otherwise, they say, is to be done for. But Paul says that's not the good news. It's not the gospel and far from freeing you to live in God's grace, it binds you. And more than that, just as it doesn't bind you, it places you under a curse. Have a look at verse 8 and 9 again and see the language here. Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under a curse. As we've already said, which I find quite entertaining because he's only already said that just in the previous verse, but it's almost like, I don't know whether he put one of those little arrows and sort of said, I need to emphasize this some more. But he's going to say it again in verse 9. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now, let's be clear. Paul's not saying the law is evil or useless. He's not saying never read the Old Testament. He's not criticizing Israel for passing on the law. But he's white hot at the Galatians for believing that legalism will save them. The gospel that saves is the gospel described at the end of verse 7. Very simply as the gospel of Christ. The gospel about Jesus and nothing else. The gospel containing Jesus and nothing else. And any other gospel... Any other news that people try and share only keeps people in hell and brings curse on its preachers. And that is a hard word for us to hear. I recognize that. We live in a world where words are violence, where to critique someone else's view or critique someone else's ideas is anathema, where to suggest that someone else is wrong can be considered evil, and so to hold a position like this is very difficult. And I want to say, friends, we must be people who are generous and kind listeners. We must be people who are thoughtful and engaged friends, who are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. But equally, we must never give even an ounce of credence to a false gospel. We must never give an ounce of credence to an Islamic gospel or a Hindu gospel or a Buddhist gospel or any other religious message that's not entirely focused on the biblical Jesus. An alternate religious ideology or some distorted, perverted gospel only cements its hearers in hell. 
And what is the gospel, therefore, that you preach? What is the gospel that you believe? Is this that gospel? Or, or in your heart, do you see even now that perhaps you, you've taken on something else? That maybe you've become wobbly. What Paul says is Galatians chapter 1 from verse 3, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We need to recognize that if that's not the gospel we speak and believe, then we ourselves may find ourselves under a curse or cursed for eternal destruction. Now I want to get specific tonight because I want us to help recognize the perverted gospels of our day. But as we do this, let's not miss what Paul is saying here. This is not just a warning against legalism. I think if we see Galatians chapter 1 as just a warning against legalism, then we'll do ourselves a disservice. What Paul is doing here is saying Jesus is front and center. It's all about Jesus. We cannot compromise the name of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and all that is done and finished there sufficient for our salvation. So we need to be on the lookout all the time for anything that compromises the name of Jesus. Ideas, practices, people, anything that supplants the sufficiency of Jesus to save you entirely and completely. And I can think of four things that just rumble around in our world consistently uh, that are false gospels that we need to be aware of. Number one, I call the gospel of Rome. Uh, this is Catholicism. Uh, the Roman view of the gospel is that justification is a process in which the sinner's responsibility to preserve grace and increase grace by various works is a serious matter. You must go to the Mass. You must go to confession. You must do actual good works. You can pray to saints that they might be able to speak to God and put a good word in for you. And so the catechism of the Catholic Church says, moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others the grace needed to attain eternal life. You can do eternal life yourself. Friends, as thousands of former Roman Catholics will testify, that just obscures Jesus. And the Roman Catholic doctrine is that you will be saved by doing good, confessing sin, observing ceremonies, and at the last, perhaps through purgatory. That is not the gospel of Christ. Number two is what I call the gospel of America. Specifically, the American cults that have emerged and are prolific around the world. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons and others. These sorts of organisations, they abolish Jesus' divinity, they abolish the uniqueness of Jesus, and they emphasise their own personal works and baptism in order to be saved. So the articles of faith in the JW space say... To benefit from the sacrifice of Jesus, people must not only exercise faith in Jesus, but also change the course of their life and get baptised. 
and then you'll be a legit Christian. And you do that all the time, lest you might fall out of God's grace. And for many, the impetus then to go door to door with the Jehovah's Witness gospel is that they might actually be saved out of fear. They could lose their salvation. And friends, this is not the gospel of Christ. The third one is one I call the gospel of the rainbow. This is the love is love gospel. And there are churches all around the place that now would describe themselves as being open and inclusive. In one such church, they say, the gospel creates a community of believers and doubters and misfits who share in the mystery of, lo- of the loving Father, the joy of the resurrected Jesus, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if you notice what's missing from that little phrase. The cross. Because you don't need a cross when you haven't done anything wrong. And when everyone's accepted just as they are, to live as they are, no dramas, there's no need for a cross because there's no need for sin to be punished. There's no need for the wrath of God to be assuaged. You just get on because God is love. And that's true. There is truth in the fact that God is love, but one truth, without all of its complementary truths, is no truth at all. Uh, So for the God of love calls us to leave aside a life of sin and follow him. God says, come as you are. Don't stay as you are. Indeed, the gospel of the rainbow says, come as you are and we'll embrace you as you are. And that is not the gospel of Christ. Fourth and finally is what I call the gospel of self. This is syncretism or smorgasbording. One of the joys of Campbelltown, when we lived there for 10 years and we did not make enough benefit of this, was we had one of Australia's two sizzlers. It was amazing. And not only that, we had several RSL and other clubs where you could pay a very small amount of money to, uh, to have all-you-can-eat food all day. It was absolutely amazing. But what's more amazing was you see someone with a plate, and often they have plates like this size, and on the plate there's prawns, Singapore noodles, spaghetti bolognese, garlic bread, and roast beef, all on one plate. Perhaps with a little bit of veggies, but usually not. And you see someone carrying that, and you think to yourself, what even is that meal? But they just gladly just chomp away at bits and pieces, and that's syncretism. That's what people have done with faith. I think this is the biggest problem that our generation face today. It's okayism. Everything's okay. Take a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of this, and you'll be fine. It'll all just work out. But what this way of thinking does is it places you above the word of God. The way the word of God works is that that it carries the authority over us. The word of God speaks to us from God and is the authority over us, such that we should look to the word of God for the way that we understand who God is and how to live in the world and what is true and what is false. But what syncretism, this idea that you can meld all sorts of different religious ideas together, what syncretism does is actually say, no, I'll stand over the Bible. 
and I will stand and decide what I'm going to accept and what I'm not and what bits I'm going to cut out of here and what bits I'll include from here, 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 here and here to make a faith that works for me. In the end it says, I'll decide what parts of God I want today. And I'll decide what parts of God's word are still relevant for me today. And I'll decide when something is called sin and when something is not called sin. And I'll decide what else I can find off the shelf that complements my ideas of God. And I'll decide when the Spirit can wield his transformative power over me and I will hold on to the things I want to hold on to and I'll call them okay and I will choose what is right for me in the midst of all the things. There's parts of the Bible I won't believe anymore, there's parts I will and I'll just choose my own adventure. That is not the gospel of Christ. And I'm certain that you interact with people who think like this. Bits of this, bits of that, and I'll make it work. That is not the gospel of Christ. This is the gospel of Christ. Look again at verse 4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. That's the gospel we believe. That's the gospel we need to preserve. And that's the gospel we share. Because only that gospel saves. How about we pray? Our great God and heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your abundant love for us that is undeserved and glorious. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who died for us to rescue us from this present evil age. And Lord God, I pray that you would help us to indeed in our lives continue to follow and trust in you for your glory forever and ever. Amen. Everyone, you're welcome to take a seat now. We're going to have some time for questions. It's really good to see we've had 19 questions. That's, that's great, isn't it? So much engagement. What we'd love to see tonight is having a go at answering a few of these. So Let's see how we go. Let's dive in. And uh, top of the list, by the way, feel free to keep voting on these. But um, the top of the list, let's go second first, actually. Okay, great. To what extent should we actually observe the law of Moses as Christians? We're not justified by law, but by grace. But Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, uh, that the law actually had a place of prominence. I think it's important to start there as we think about that. So that Jesus was saying at that point in time that the law is not useless. He's saying, I haven't come to just go, push it to the side, move on but that there was a something significant about what Jesus was going to do as he walked into the world and started to teach people that was related to the law. Now, although a little bit uh, um, imposed upon the Old Testament law, I found an answer to this question that helps me make sense of it is to see the law in three parts. It's not uncommon for people to see the law as sort of having three elements to it. There were the ceremonial elements which were largely things you had to do in order to be saved, 
in order to be part of all the things that God wanted them to do to honour the salvation that had been won for them at the temple or the tabernacle, the killing of bulls, the burning of sacrifices. That's all ceremonial. Uh, then there were a whole lot of sort of civil things that they did that were all focused around how they should order their lives uh, together. And then there were a whole lot of perhaps moral things that then were all part of the law as well. Uh, as Jesus walks into the world, we see that he is the one who is the one who fulfills all the ceremonial part of the law. So the reason why we don't kill bulls and burn them here on a Sunday night is because Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice who has done away with that necessity completely. So that section of the law is gone. Uh, the civil section of the law uh, and all the rules for how they should order their life together and how things should fit and where buildings should go, etc. We don't live in Israel and neither are we Jews. And Jesus didn't follow those things and so neither then ought we. So that leaves us with the moral part of the law. And as I think about the moral part of the law, that itself can be divided into two parts. Perhaps there's food laws and then obedience laws. Matthew chapter, uh, Mark chapter 7, Jesus makes some comments that actually show that the food laws are out. So bacon is good. Uh, and then you're left with the moral law. What then do you do with the moral law? Well, Jesus himself actually upholds parts of the moral law and we ought to uphold the moral law insofar as Jesus upholds the moral law. So it's really interesting as you keep reading in Matthew, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, and read through the Sermon on the Mount, there's several points at which Jesus sort of says, now you lot, you, you say do not murder, and, and that's, that's the rule. But then you go around hating people. And you go around almost murdering people, but not quite, and think that's okay. Because there's a law, and the law says don't murder. I didn't do that. I just punched you really hard. So it's okay. And Jesus says, no. Even the one who in their heart expresses anger toward another has broken that commandment. Now we could go through all the commandments and other moral laws, but I think that we actually, as Christian people, can view those things as the background to much of the moral teaching in the New Testament. And as we, if we were to, or when we do get to the back end of Galatians, some of what we look at will be backgrounded in the Old Testament moral law. But if you want to know how to live as a Christian, start in the New Testament and you'll see that the New Testament sometimes guides you back or relies upon principles that God has held through all the scriptures. And one of those, I think, perhaps, uh, will be sexuality. We see that God's view on sexuality wasn't novel in the New Testament. No, it's actually founded on his moral law, and even before that, before the law existed in the Old Testament. So, short answer, insofar as Jesus and the New Testament commends the law, let us keep the law. Insofar as the New Testament or Jesus has fulfilled the law, let us allow that law to be fulfilled and move on. Either way... We never do those things to achieve salvation. We only do those things because that's freedom. And we'll see more of that in Galatians 5 and 6. Nigel, just while you're answering that question, people have been voting like crazy. Things have been moving around all over the place. Fascinating. To, uh, why are people asking you this one? I'm interested to know, but can Josh and Luke eat the croissants? <laughs> Is that an authority uh, you're going to play on your uh, staff here with <laughs> Josh? No. We'll talk about that after church. <laughs> Probably wouldn't make very good TV, I don't reckon. No, we won't do that. Okay. Um, well, let's go to something uh, that's made it right up to the top of the list. How should we engage with music from churches which preach a false gospel? Mm. And then there's a church here that's... I don't know much about this church, but they've listed a church here. Yeah. 
let's take it as an example of a church. Yep. How do we engage with music from churches which preach a false gospel? Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things. Uh, number one, I am really aware that this has been a live issue here at Christchurch and Ives. So I just want to put that on the table and thank you to the 9,000 people who've come and talked to me about it. Uh, it's, um, it's been a, a great and glorious thing to actually be able to just listen to a whole range of people's views and thoughts uh, on uh, this question. So I've been really thankful for that. Um, number two, uh, I want to acknowledge that it's actually a really difficult question that is driven by all manner of things. Uh, the way you decide uh, what music you will and won't sing in church uh, has various facets. Uh, you want to have music that you can sing together. You want to have music that actually lyrically your musicians can play. You also want to have music that is theologically sound. The last thing we want to be doing is to be singing uh, a song to each other and to glory the Lord, which is actually an error. I remember one song from 20 years ago that told us to let yourself have faith that rests on the hope that God has placed in your heart. That's weird. I thought my faith was meant to be in the cross, not in hope. Anyway, so we ditched that song. Uh, and, and so there are lots of things that go into thinking about the way that you choose music for church. Next thing is to realise that when you actually start singing music in church, you enter into a financial arrangement with the people who write the music. So every song that we have sung tonight is logged, and we pay uh, through an agency called the, well, I'll just call it CCLI, I can't remember exactly what it is, Christian Copyright Licensing International. I think it's that. Is that right, Nicole? Something like that. Um, uh, so when we actually play someone's song, we have a license that we pay, and we're paying them. So th that means that when we pay, when we put an author up on the screen, they're getting money from us. And we want to make sure that we are then paying money for things that actually, and for uh, music houses that are worth paying money to as well. So all of those things go into the mix. Uh, at, next, I want to say that uh, you've all heard of the internet. Uh, and uh, what that means is that you can actually leave church and listen to whatever you want. Uh, in our house, one of the songs that is uh, regularly talked about, slightly complained about by me, slightly loved by everyone else, is Oceans. How of you know Oceans? Yeah, that's see. Now look, have you ever sung Oceans in church? Probably not. Maybe if you've been in another church, you may have. But, but th this is the reality in which we now live. We all are listening to music on Spotify or Apple Music for the four people still there. That's my family. Uh, and, um, and I think we're moving. Uh, that's not an announcement. Um, but, but there's also a reality for us as pastors that we know you guys will listen to all range of different things. And, and that's fine. I, I'm never going to censor what you listen to in your own private time. But I will censor songs that I think are deliberately or, or misguidedly misleading, that are not teaching the gospel of Christ. And, and then on the issue of, uh, then there are some songs that I think are brilliant that come out of music stables that are um, perhaps not coherent theologically. So one of those songs that I really love uh, is the Apostles' Creed song that Hillsong did in a collaboration with John Dixon that no doubt many of you have heard and sung, etc. Et I think that's a brilliant song. And I think it's slightly tragic that we didn't use it during our Apostles' Creed series. 
I recognize I'm in charge. Uh, <laughs> so look, I, I am, uh, I'm sharing you all of this, with, with you all of this because the, this question is a question that we are going to come to as a staff team this term as Alex and the magnification team actually uh, start to you know, hit their straps and take over from things that Anton was doing and, and press forward. But I wanted to share all that with you to help you see the complexity of the whole scenario and to recognise that what we do on the platform here actually represents what we believe and what we think is the gospel of Christ. And I think the decisions that have been made in the past have been good decisions that were made. I recognise that some of those decisions uh, were hurtful decisions and, and did damage to relationships between people, and I am deeply grieved by that. And, and so we, we are going to think about this whole question and do so deliberately and carefully and compassionately and pastorally and theologically, uh, recognising that what happens here from the platform has to be uh, coherent. We need to support that, recognising you guys listen to whatever you want, that there are financial arrangements, but theology matters. And, and we'll let you know in due course what we decide about that. And I'm sorry that I can't say more than that, but I'm just being totally honest with the fact that I know that there are, are deep veins of hurt with people who are still here about this question, for which I lament. Let's finish on this one, Nigel, just thinking of the gospel we've heard tonight of you know, the grace and the peace, mm. the great freedom we have. This question here. If someone is happily living like they're in heaven and they don't feel like they need God, how can I convince them that they need Jesus? Mm. First thing I do would be making a point with the mission pastor. Mm. Um, who's that, Elliot? Hi. <laughs> uh, I, I, um, uh, I think the number one thing that you can do is continue living as a Christian and, and making the choices in your life to honour God. Uh, any idea that somehow by uh, compromising your own faith or compromising the cr Christian living is going to make that more attractive to someone else to consider the gospel is just wrong, 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 wrong. And I think that as you were talking to the gentleman after church this morning, and he used a great illustration for some friends of his, and he said, you know, they, they just look like everything is perfect all the time. But you don't need to do much to scratch the surface a little, and you'll see that there's one coat of paint over rust in different positions. And so sometimes it just takes a little conversation here, a little conversation there. Uh, but, but what would I be doing? I'd be first of all praying. I'd be praying that God would work in their heart that they may see the glory of Christ. Number two, I'd be working hard at those friendships. I wouldn't be abandoning people or shunning people. If there are people like that in your life, I would, as far as it is possible with you, to keep and keep those friendships going. And, and Elliot's great at this, actually, on staff, as we have evangelistic contact. He's often just sort of like, how's that going? How's that going over there? If we don't keep going at this, then we're going to lose this contact. How's that going, Nigel? What's happening with that? True? I love being an irritant. That's my reputation. You do. <laughs> He's just like a little bit of acid just on his shoulder the whole time. Speaking, uh, speaking of acid, can you smell the tomato sauce I coming I really from that? can, actually. It's bad. I so number it would be fresh up here. No, it's bad. Pray, keep being a friend, keep chipping away at it, and, and, and be thoughtful about where, what your friend might actually believe or think and where the moment is for you to be able to actually point out, do you know, that doesn't actually quite work. And that's not going to get you anywhere in life if you keep following that path. 
and, and be curious and, and ask good questions and stay engaged and pray. Because the truth of the gospel will triumph over all things. It'll triumph over life and death because that is the story of the cross, that death has been conquered, that life has been given, and that that life is everlasting for the glory of God. Amen. Thanks, Nigel. Thanks, Nigel. I'm going to go to Liv to come join me. I thought it'd be fresher up here, Liv. You're right near the croissants down there. It's really stinky. It really is. You probably can smell it right up the back too. But uh, just as we wind up tonight, uh, Liv, you know, we, we come to church and we get to listen to sermons and absorb them and think and reflect on them. As you've done so tonight, what's something that stood out for you? Yeah, I think um, I'm going to take two things. Um, sorry. But um, the first one is I think just the concept that all we bring is our sin to God. Um, I think in this world we're all about being the best version of ourselves. Um, sort of think about coming to someone and saying, this is the worst part of me, and then saying, you're loved, um, and they gave us Jesus. I think that's amazing. Um, and the second thing I think was just, um, I guess, the challenge to make sure that we're standing up for the right gospel being preached. Um, I know lots of us are um, sharing Jesus in many different parts of life, whether that's at uni or work or wherever, um, but I just think it takes courage to say, actually, that's not correct, and you forgot Jesus or something like that. Um, and so I just think that's a challenge for me. Um, but yeah, maybe a challenge for you guys too as to whether we're standing up for the right gospel um, every day. Just coming out of Galatians and hearing the first talk for me, it's a very firm letter. Like, you know, we're hearing words like perverse and curse and things like that. It's very firm, but it's not dark and negative. It's filled with so much freedom and grace and joy. So looking forward to this whole series that it draws us to the grace of the gospel, that secures us in that gospel, and we'll, we'll walk away from this series being absolutely clear on that. Nothing clouded in our minds. Let's go away clear on the gospel.